from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. 何老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Maggie Penman, in for Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December sixteenth. Today, how lawmakers vote to enrich themselves, the controversy over Biden's defense pick, and a food critic on getting COVID. So let's start with who are you and what do you do for the Post? Sure, my name is Chris Ingram,、um, and I'm a reporter for the Post. I specialize in anything having to do with data, and that can be weird, fun things like maps of the ugliest places in America, and it can be more serious things、uh, like this story. Chris has been reporting on new research about the link between how lawmakers vote and the stocks they own. It's been in the news. It's about congressional stock ownership and、uh, questions about insider trading, and it's been an issue because in the、uh, Georgia runoff. Now these races, which will determine the balance of power in the Senate, have garnered national attention and millions of dollars in fundraising. We have、uh, Georgia Republicans Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, and they've faced a lot of questions over the past year about a series of very well-timed trades around the beginning of the pandemic involving stocks of companies that had the potential to lose or gain lots of money during the pandemic. Both of Georgia's U.S. senators are under fire for allegedly trying to profit from the coronavirus pandemic. Records show that Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue bought and sold stock shortly after a private Senate briefing on the virus, a classified briefing. So there's been all these questions about insider trading, and I should say that from a strictly legal standpoint, they've been completely cleared of any wrongdoing. And that's what this study is about. A pair of political scientists—they basically examined stock portfolios of every member in the House, and they kind of correlated that with those members' votes on a number of issues that had the potential to affect the stock market. And what they found was that congressmen who own stocks are considerably and significantly more likely to vote in ways that basically juice their stock portfolio, that enrich their net worth. And we should point out this research wasn't the result of the Leffler Purdue scandal, but I do remember when that story first came out. I wondered why lawmakers are allowed to own individual stocks at all, because it feels so ripe for corruption for them to both be making decisions that could affect the stock market, and then also potentially profiting from those decisions. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the question a lot of people are asking. So, what happened is back in 2012, Congress passed what's now known as the Stock Act, and what that does is it basically bans insider trading by congressmen and women. So, if they know that like something is going to happen to a company as a result of legislation they're working on or whatever, they can't trade based on that secret information that they have that nobody else does. Now, one one thing that's funny to consider about that is that prior to 2012, that kind of behavior was completely legal. Nothing wrong with it at all. Which、so、is that, wild, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, it's completely wild because it's you know it's it's、uh, there are laws and regulations around it all over the country, but there hadn't been in Congress. So the law that was passed it, it banned the most egregious examples of that. That was why the Justice Department was able to investigate some of those trades we read about earlier in the year because if they had done so with inside knowledge, that would have been a clear violation of the law. I'm curious. Why is this coming up again now? Why is this back in the news? 
we've got these big runoff elections coming up in Georgia that are going to control the partisan makeup of the Senate. And basically the fate of the Senate hangs on these two elections in Georgia. And it's between the Republican candidates who are the incumbent senators. They are the ones who were uh, investigated earlier in the year for potential insider trading. Well, perhaps Senator Perdue would have been able to respond properly to the COVID-19 pandemic if you hadn't been fending off multiple federal investigations for insider trading. Senator Leffler, when you uh, received the private briefing regarding the coronavirus pandemic, you dumped millions of dollars of stock uh, in order to protect your own investments. And then weeks later, when there came an opportunity to give ordinary Georgians an extra $600 of relief, you said you saw no need and called it counterproductive. And so the Democratic candidates in the race, they are really trying to make a big issue of this. And they're saying, OK, look, they were cleared of wrongdoing by the Justice Department. Senator, pardon me, you thought the government was prepared yet. Shortly after that tweet that I just noted, you sold over a million dollars in stocks in your own personal portfolio before the market went down. Were you trading on inside information about what was coming? Well, I'm, I'm really glad you asked, Ed, because I do want to set the record straight. I've seen some of those stories, and it's absolutely false, and it could not be true. But the fact is, there are so many different ways for lawmakers to enrich themselves in the office that they're trying to kind of make this a campaign issue. And, you know, when the news first broke about these trades, it didn't really look that great. And there were a lot of people getting upset over it. And I think when you talk to voters and you look at public opinion surveys, this kind of uh, potential for self-interest and self-dealing is something people really worried about. So tell me a bit more about this study and how they actually conducted this research. First thing they did is they collected lawmakers' votes on these four big um, financial bills that either loosen restrictions on financial companies or that bailed out industries in the aftermath of the Great Recession. And then they looked at lawmakers' stock portfolios because lawmakers have to disclose that information. Basically, they were comparing lawmakers' stock ownership against their votes. And they were trying to see if ownership in, say, car company stock was associated with voting one way or the other for an auto bailout. They also controlled for a whole bunch of other factors that influence lawmaker votes like party and ideology and net worth and unemployment. Basically, it was just cross-referencing two different quantities. Does ownership and stock influence the way that a lawmaker votes on issues affecting that stock? And the answer is absolutely yes. When lawmakers own stock in a company, they tend to vote in ways that boost the performance of that stock. In other words, they are voting for their self-interest. They aren't just voting for whatever the issue is for society that they're voting on. Congressmen and women are allowed to own stock. They are allowed to trade stock. And they are absolutely allowed to vote based in ways that will juice the values of their portfolio. They are completely allowed and not prohibited at all from voting in their own financial self-interest. So is there any thought that maybe this shouldn't be legal? Is this something that anyone is considering trying to change? You know, there are a number of bills before Congress, and I think one of those issues where they're perennial every single year, somebody introduces a bill to either ban stock trading completely or ban stock ownership. The problem is, like so many other issues, it just tends to not go very far. 
The tricky thing about that kind of legislation, in order to pass it, you have to get lawmakers to vote against their own financial self-interest. And that's just, uh, unfortunately, it is a huge challenge. And so none of those bills have gone very far, but we'll see what happens in the aftermath of the January runoffs. Chris Ingram reports on data for The Post. So when we look at where the Defense Department is now, the, the answer is complicated. My name is Dan Lamoth. I cover the Pentagon and the U.S. military for The Post. I've been with the paper since 2014. Overseas, we're looking at a lot of decisions that Trump pushed for that are partly done, but not really finished. Uh, That includes uh, his call to get troops out of Germany. Because Germany is delinquent in their NATO payments, very delinquent. They're at a half a level. That includes his call to get troops out of Afghanistan. Had tremendous success in Afghanistan in the killing of terrorists, but it's time after all these years to go and to bring our people back home. We want to bring our people back home. The Trump administration signed a deal with the Taliban to remove all troops by next spring, but it was predicated on on there being peace there at least at some level of conditions on the ground reflecting that, if not any kind of farther deal. We haven't seen that. So those are the sort of things that as we look forward, the Biden administration is going to have to decide how to deal with all of those things. Domestically, the military, there there was a great deal of money spent on it during the Trump administration. So the, the military is seemingly somewhat ready for any kind of conflict that might might arise. But it's also trying to transition toward uh, modernization and and preparing for future conflict against uh, the Pentagon, we call it a near peer adversary, Uh, China, Russia, somebody else that, that would be a significant security concern for the United States. And who has President elect Joe Biden selected as his nominee to take all of this on? Through sheer determination and extraordinary skill, he's been breaking down barriers and blazing a trail forward in this nation for many years now, for more than 40 years. Biden's pick is Lloyd Austin. He's a retired general with more than 40 years of service in the Army. The majority of Austin's career as a senior officer was focused on Iraq and the Middle East. He's an unconventional pick in that he is a recent military officer, and that will actually require some additional vetting uh, because the Pentagon typically does not have a senior military officer, even retired, uh, serving in that role. When I concluded my military service four years ago, I hung up my uniform for the last time and went from being General Lloyd Austin to Lloyd Austin. It is an important distinction and one that I make with utmost seriousness and sincerity. So what makes Lloyd Austin a controversial choice? So the the military and really the U.S. government writ large has long adhered to a principle of civilian control of the military. 
The idea, and this dates back to a post-World War II 1947 law, uh, is that we should have civilians running the Defense Department, that the military is a very powerful institution in its own right, and that there needs to be sort of separation between those two things. There have been a couple exceptions in history, but they've usually come at pretty remarkable times. Uh, The first one uh, actually happened just a couple years after that law passed, and it was when the Korean War was going terribly, and the request was for General George Marshall. His name comes up most frequently in association with World War II and the Marshall Plan, uh, kind of the rebuild of Europe. The second example comes up much more recently. Uh, that's when President Trump selected Jim Mattis, a uh, retired Marine general, uh, just four years ago. We are going to appoint Mad Dog Mattis as our Secretary of Defense. That, w- that was seen as a very out-of-the-box pick as well. And I think that happened in large part because a lot of the names that Trump might have been able to select from the Republican Party had all kind of broken with him publicly already. They, they had signed Never Trump letters. They had criticized him publicly. And Trump didn't have nearly as many people uh, to consider as he might have otherwise would have. I think it's something that is a bit hard to understand from the outside, why you wouldn't want a defense secretary that has recent military experience. Because you would think that a military background would position you really well for this job. So can you just explain a bit of why we have had this longstanding rule in the U.S. that we don't want someone who just recently retired or just left the military? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair and common point of uh, discussion and confusion. The The long-held belief, when, when you go to the Pentagon, there's, there's typically the, the military leaders, uh, the generals, the colonels, their staffs. Uh, and then separately from that, there's the civilian leadership, which would include the defense secretary, the army secretary, uh, and all of their staffs. Those two groups of people collaborate. They work together. But the military as the institution is supposed to be nonpartisan. And the civilian leadership is partisan by nature. So they have different missions. And, and the idea is that they should be serving in different ways. It it seems like a little bit of an outlier in the choices that we've heard about so far from Biden. Like for the most part, the choices for his top administration officials and his cabinet picks have been pretty not controversial. Um, So why do you think Biden made this choice? I think this is uh, one of the more controversial and unconventional picks in a number of ways. Uh, One is that there there actually was uh, believed to be a pretty deep bench of options. One one person waiting in the wings, uh, Michelle Flournoy, was was seen as the likely defense secretary if Hillary Clinton had won the election. Uh, she's worked in an, in the Pentagon and around the Pentagon for years. She was seen as a as a contender this time. She did meet with Biden shortly before Biden went in the other direction. Jay Johnson uh, was a Obama administration official as well. He worked in the Pentagon for some time as the general counsel. Then he ran the Homeland Security Department for Obama. He would have been another option. I think what it came down to was Biden was very comfortable with Austin, got to know him when Austin was in charge of uh, U.S. military operations in the Middle East as the uh, commander of U.S. Central Command and had a somewhat 
personal relationship with him too that that included not only him but also Bo Biden serving on General Austin's staff at one point. He he is a respected leader. Uh, he is someone who served at very high levels in the U.S. military. There isn't any sense that this is a guy who's got baggage or scandal or anything like that associated with him. Uh, he sort of sort of quietly served, did what the Obama, Obama administration asked him to do. Biden points to that and also the historic nature uh, of his selection. Uh, in the entire history of the country, there has never been a black defense secretary. Lloyd Austin served uh, more than 40 years in the U.S. military. There have been very few black leaders at that level in the military as well. Uh, and Biden sees in, in light of sort of where the nation is this year and uh, you know the, the troubled race relations we've had in, in a lot of different places, and the U.S. military is included in that, uh, that Lloyd Austin will bring a different perspective. You mentioned that lawmakers would generally be opposed to having someone so tightly connected with the military serving in this role. But how have lawmakers reacted to Austin knowing Biden's reasoning? And do you think he'll have a tough time getting confirmed? I think this is going to be an interesting and complicated confirmation process because we've seen some Democrats who did have problems with Mattis's nomination in light of his general background who were opposed to giving him the waiver that he would have required, basically waiving the law to allow him to serve in this position. Uh, that includes people like Senator Warren, Senator Blumenthal, Senator Tester. These are people who had a direct role, asked tough questions at the time. What about the president himself? Under what circumstances will you advocate for your views forcefully and frankly? On every circumstance, Senator. Senator, it's not my role. On the flip side of that, the Republicans didn't have as many problems with having a general in the position. The opposition they're raising is more specifically on Lloyd Austin's background. Particularly, I have seen concerns raised about Austin having served the majority of his career, especially at senior ranks in the Middle East. He served in Iraq for many years. He rose to become central command chief, all of that sort of being Middle East focused. Under the Trump administration, the Pentagon has started to transition toward China being the primary concern. And the the idea that you'd bring in somebody who's so Iraq focused and Middle East focused seems to cut against that. So where does Lloyd Austin fit in with the rest of the cabinet picks that we know about? Lloyd Austin, I think, is seen as somebody who will be a good soldier, uh, somebody who will be uh, loyal to the president, somebody who will credibly lead the Defense Department behind the scenes. At times in the past, the Pentagon has been a very powerful political player as well as nonpartisan political player based on those two groups of people. You know, you go back to the Bush, uh, the uh, George W. Bush era. The Pentagon had a lot of political clout. Uh, it was able to push through priorities that it had. I think the sense is with with Lloyd Austin that the Pentagon's going to be more in the background. Uh, that the the Biden administration would rather prioritize domestic politics, uh, diplomacy, uh, other things like that. Dan Lamoth covers the Pentagon for The Post. And now, one more thing from Tim Carmen on a food critic's experience getting COVID. The cough began in earnest on November 10th, a Tuesday. 
It was a dry hack and got worse as the day progressed. I went to bed early and woke up the next morning feeling as if I had been hit by a truck and left for dead by the side of the road. My fever was nearly 103 degrees and I didn't want to move. This would be just the beginning of my descent into COVID-19, an equal opportunity to disease that rips lives and families apart, regardless of whether you believe in it or not. I do believe in it. I studiously tried to avoid it. I wore a mask everywhere I went. With the exception of two visits back in June, I didn't dine indoors. When I ate outdoors, I made sure to cover my face whenever I interacted with people. If I walked into a retail store, I followed two more rules. Don't stay long and don't enter if it's crowded. I'm not the first food writer and critic to get the coronavirus. I probably won't be the last, given what I know about infection rates and the work ethic of my peers, who continue to move about their communities to tell you about the good, the bad, and the tasty. Since November 1st, nearly 6.8 million Americans have come down with the coronavirus, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Representing nearly 43% of the coronavirus cases in the United States to date. Those numbers tell us one thing, which we ignore at our risk. We are just entering the maw of this monster. Many more will get chewed up by this. We are also entering prime holiday season. And despite the skyrocketing cases and the governmental warnings to avoid gatherings, hundreds and thousands of Americans decided to visit family and or friends. What drives this behavior is part human, the desire to surround yourself with loved ones at this time of year, and part a staggering level of denial about a virus that does not give a flip about your family get-together. I've read stories about people who died of COVID, arguing with their caregiver that this is all a hoax, even as they're hooked up to ventilators and unable to breathe on their own. This is four-star level denial. But there are many levels below it. When I first suspected that I had COVID a good two days before the diagnosis arrived, I never let myself entertain any worst-case scenarios. I simply couldn't imagine that I might be among the minority of people who get more than flu-like symptoms, even though I'm in my late 50s, slightly overweight, and have bad allergies that sometimes trigger asthma. My lungs were an easy target. My most immediate worry was whether I'd lose my sense of taste and smell, common symptoms for those affected with COVID. Some patients have waited months for their olfactory senses and taste buds to return. I had no idea how I'd do my job if I suffered a similar fate. Fortunately, I never had to worry about it. I lost my appetite for a couple of weeks, and I lost weight, but I never lost my ability to taste or smell. It's a cruel space to occupy as a food writer. You can smell the aromas of homemade tomato soup, chocolate chip cookies, Persian rice, fresh brewed coffee, tonkatsu ramen, and none of them hold any appeal. COVID had other surprises waiting for me instead. On Wednesday night, just 24 hours into this nightmare, I woke up around 4 a.m., feeling generally uncomfortable. I sat up in bed and within a matter of minutes, I could feel my body start to turn against me. I felt warm, so I slid to the floor to let the hardwoods cool my skin. 
When I experienced a pain so profound and all-encompassing, I couldn't put it into words for my wife, Carrie. All I could do is cry, oh God, over and over again. By the time Carrie was diagnosed, we didn't leave our little sick bay bunker for two solid weeks. We'd only open the door for delivered groceries and the many meals and care packages that friends, family, and colleagues left for us. It felt like a fever dream. Unlock the door, turn the handle, and bam, food would magically appear on the front porch. Chicken soup, lentil soup, breads, brownies, cheeses, breakfast tacos, bottles of wine, bags of coffee, Burmese curry noodles. After years of chasing around the DMV for my meals, I was grateful to find some of the finest foods literally at our doorstep. We enjoyed the spread by ourselves, surrounded by our two perpetually greedy hounds, and warned by the thought that with the help of friends and family and ungodly amounts of Tylenol, we'd escape the worst of this thing. Our temperatures are down and our energy slowly returning. This life and the people with whom we choose to share it are all that we have. I feel like I have my life back. I can breathe again. And once we're on the other side of this pandemic, I plan to spend as much time as possible occupying the same airspace as the people who helped us through this ordeal. We will laugh together, eat together, and breathe freely together. Tim Carmen writes about food and restaurants for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We try to keep an eye on what our listeners are thinking and what they're interested in via our Facebook group. So if you haven't joined, please sign up. And if you're part of it already, we've gotten so many great story ideas and really helpful feedback from everyone. So thank you. I'm Maggie Penman. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.